it, it's it's poor women, it's wealthy women. Uh, but the, the thing is that this is an attack on women. This isn't this isn't you know saving babies. This that's bullshit. This is an attack on women and their health. If men got pregnant, this wouldn't be an issue. And I know you've heard that a lot, but that's that's just true. If, if this if men got pregnant, this wouldn't be an issue. My name is Allison Case. I'm a family doctor and an abortion provider, and over the next few months, I'll be traveling across the country talking with abortion providers and advocates about restrictions in their states and what they think will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the upcoming Supreme Court session. I hope this podcast will serve as a jumping-off point for new advocates who want to get involved with the fight for reproductive justice, including abortion access. Access to abortion is a fundamental human right. Thanks for joining me as we learn more about how we can preserve this right together. Hi, everyone. This is Allison. Welcome to another episode of For the Love of Roe. Today, we're going to be focusing on the great state of Wyoming. Full disclosure, this is one of my favorite places in the entire world. I'm a huge fan of Yellowstone National Park. I spent almost two weeks there. The geothermal features are amazing. The geysers, the paint pots, the bubbling water. If you have a chance to go there, definitely do it. And of course, there's lots of wildlife, so lots of buffalo. It's really fantastic. But that aside, we are here to talk about abortion access in Wyoming. You heard from one of the two abortion providers at the beginning of this episode. That was Dr. Brent Blue, who's a family medicine doctor in Jackson. The other provider who I also got to speak with is Giovannina Anthony, who's an OB-GYN in Jackson. So you'll note that both of the providers are in Jackson, Wyoming, which if you've ever been to Jackson, you know that this is a city very much apart from the rest of the state. So it's very affluent. It is very blue, which is unusual, as we'll talk about for the rest of the state. This is a place where lots of tourists come for skiing. It's considered the gateway to Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. It's also a place where affluent folks who live outside the state may own property. If you look at a map, Jackson is on the far western side of the state, so you can imagine there's a whole swath of the rest of the state that would have to travel a great distance to get there. I had the opportunity to also talk with nurse practitioner Caitlin Shea, who's a part of Chelsea's Fund, which is an abortion fund and an advocacy organization in Wyoming doing great work, and also with Sharon Brettweiser, the executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Wyoming. So we'll hear from both of them as we talk more about the restrictions in the state and the challenges that people face trying to seek abortion care. Wyoming is home to Arapaho, Arikara, Bannock, Blackfeet, Cheyenne, Crow, Grovant, Kiowa, Nez Perce, Sheep Eater, Sioux, Shoshone, and Ute tribes. There's a large Indian reservation called the Wind River Indian Reservation that is also in the state. Little plug for my previous episode in which I interviewed the leaders of the Indigenous Women Rising organization. I encourage you to check that out to learn more about the challenges facing Indigenous groups specifically, notably the Hyde Amendment, which limits federal funding for abortion services, extends to Indian health services. So there are no abortion services provided from IHS facilities, which is the primary point of access for healthcare for most people who live on reservations. So that is a challenge for indigenous people who live in Wyoming. I mentioned before that this is a very red state, so very conservative. I talked more at length with Sharon Brettweiser, the executive director of NARAL, about the politics of Wyoming and the regional differences. How would you describe the political landscape in this state? I know you said conservative. Um, Are there regional differences? What's that like? 
There are regional differences to some extent. It we, I mean, I'm sure other states maybe claim this, but from what I have seen and read, we are the most Republican state in the United States. And, you know, we used to have more of a kind of libertarian leaning bent among some of the uh, the Republicans, but it seems to be getting more right wing regarding the social issues. Regionally, you used to kind of be able to count on their their was a swath of kind of uh, democratic politics and people getting elected and uh, NARAL, of course, we're not by we're we're not partisan. We're you know bipartisan, nonpartisan, transpartisan, whatever word you want to use. But you know the reality is, of course, that there is a difference in people being elected from the different parties. And it used to be historically the Union Pacific Railroad had gone like Cheyenne, Laramie, Rollins, Rock Springs, Evanston, and so there was was kind of this belt of of more not quite as conservative thinking, but that seems to be changing in recent years, and we, we're we getting more more folks elected in some of those areas that are, are pretty conservative and pretty right-wing. We've got liberal pockets. The only truly liberal pocket anymore is up in Teton County, which is where Jackson is, where you, you visited with our two providers, and they they kind of pretty reliably, uh, you know, vote vote progressive politics. Albany County, where I live in the southeast corner of the state in Laramie, is probably the next closest thing to a liberal pocket. We have the only four-year university in the state here, and so you get a little bit of a, a moderating influence, but you also get all of the really conservative young people coming from around the state to attend college here. So it doesn't doesn't serve as, as much of a moderator of political opinion as, as one might think. But so, yeah, there's, there's definitely variations. There are some parts of the state that are just really, really conservative, you know, Cody, Wyoming, that whole Park County area, and then Atrona County in the, the center of the state are, but then some of the smaller communities too, you just consistently get get more conservative folks being being elected from those areas. So yeah, it's it's pretty conservative. You really see this conservatism play out when you look at the makeup of the Wyoming State House and Senate. We've got 30 people in our state Senate, and 27 of them are Republicans. We have only three Democrats. Our state house has 60 people. We have 50 Republicans, and then we have nine Democrats and one Independent. So even if you're you're picking up moderate Republicans that are going to be more reasonable on these issues, you've got to get an awful lot of them. And they're getting pressure from the party to be hardcore, and they're getting kind of beat up if they don't toe the party line on some of this stuff. One thing I was particularly interested in with regards to Wyoming was this libertarian vein, and that seems to exist across the state and has historically been in place. And in fact, Wyoming has a an interesting history of being the first state to legally allow women to vote. Not that this is necessarily the litmus test for equality, but it's an interesting finding that I didn't expect that this state that's considered very conservative nowadays would have been the first one to allow women to get the vote. I heard from both providers about this libertarianism and how it impacts practice and policy in the state. I asked Sharon a little bit more about that and whether this libertarianism is still present or whether it's waning and being overtaken by more radical far-right policies. You know, I think it's that's a good question. I think it's it's more the latter. Um, I'm not sure that the people are really that different. I think most people still 
I like, at least I like to think most people still have kind of a live and let live attitude. We have seen, I mean, it goes in waves, but recently we've seen a shift in the state Republican Party of being much more hardcore and targeting, uh, which they shouldn't be doing, but, you know, going after the more moderate Republicans. We've seen a lot of three-way primary races where the moderate Republican is is kind of forced out because of the way the dynamics go. We have seen a lot of, of money being spent. We've seen out-of-state conservatives like there was, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but there was a fair amount of publicity in the the 2018 election when Foster Freeze came here and tried to run for governor and, you know, just brought in millions and millions of dollars. So, and we've got, it's, it's interesting, you know, up in, in Teton County, there's just a boatload of money up there. There are a lot of really, really rich people up in the Jackson, Jackson Hole area of both political persuasions. So you've got a lot of really wealthy, progressive people that want to fund good candidates and good causes, but you've also got, you know, people like the Cheneys that own property up there and people like Foster Freeze that claim residency up there. So to the extent you've got a a statewide race, we are seeing outside money coming in to, to back some of those candidates. So there does seem to be a shift away from some of the libertarian ideals that have existed in Wyoming, but some of that seems to be driven by outside funding, as Sharon noted. In part due to this history of libertarian ideals, where folks do not want the government involved in any part of their lives, laws limiting access to abortion have been somewhat less restrictive than in many of the states we've already talked about. But, of course, they aren't absent. And challenges to abortion have certainly not been absent over the last few decades. Sharon talked to me some more about the challenges that have been ongoing, even if they haven't been totally successful in Wyoming. I mean, it's never been rosy here. You know, people tend to think that things have gotten worse. And I think they have. But again, I've been working at this for a long time, and it does go in waves. And we've had, we've had times, you know, back in the early 90s, and uh, when we came very, very close to completely outlawing abortion. So from 1989 until 2017, we didn't pass a single restriction. Now we got bad bills on the books. We've got parental consent, we've got Medicaid restrictions, we've got, you know, everything in the statutes in section uh, title 35, section six is a restriction of some sort on this procedure, but we managed to hold everything back. I mean, and we saw everything you've seen everywhere else. We've seen, we saw partial birth abortions, we saw heartbeat bills, we saw throwing women in jail for using drugs, we saw 48 hour waiting periods, we saw bias counseling telling women they were going to get breast cancer, we saw double homicides for a woman being murdered at any stage of pregnancy, we saw, you know, we've had absolutely everything you've, pretty much everything you've seen anywhere else. And we managed to beat it all back. And then finally in 2017 and 2019, we did have some additional restrictions passed, but we had an awful lot of close calls over those 30 plus years. So like Sharon said, there's been an awful lot of close calls, but Wyoming has managed to avoid a lot of the restrictions that we've seen in other states that we've visited so far. Dr. Giovannina Anthony is an OB-GYN in Jackson, Wyoming, who includes medication abortion as part of her practice. I mentioned her at the beginning of the episode. She's one of the two providers that are in the state of Wyoming, and she's a practicing OB-GYN. I talked with her about the restrictions that exist in Wyoming and what they look like in her everyday practice. Well, so Wyoming does have a few laws on the books that we have to pay attention to. First of all, it's a parental consent state, that is an issue. It is also a state where you have to be a licensed physician to provide 
abortion care. You cannot be a nurse midwife. You cannot be a nurse practitioner. You can't be a, a tertiary sort of practitioner. You need to be a physician. So that creates a bit of, of a barrier, especially in the rural West, right. where a lot of PAs and nurse practitioners provide all sorts of care across the state. Mm -hmm. Those are the two primary conditions, or I should say laws. Mm -hmm. I would say there are a few other small things. We're required to report abortion to the state, mm -hmm. which is more, I think, of a, a hassle and sla sort of a harassment of the providers. Um, it's not really a barrier to patients. But the other barrier really is just the rural aspect of the state. In Wyoming, as far as I know, there are only two practitioners, and we're both in Jackson, which is on the western side of the Rockies, and the need for abortion care in Wyoming on the eastern side of the Rockies has not really been an issue in terms of access because it is so easy to get to Denver and Fort Collins if you're in the southeast corner, and in the northeast corner, it's easy to get to Billings, Montana. Oh, okay. I didn't realize so, there was a provider there. Okay. Yeah. So between Good. 70 and 80% of Wyoming women who pursue abortion care do so in Colorado hmm. and Montana. There are a few key takeaways from what we just heard from Dr. Anthony. I didn't realize before talking with her that many Wyomingians or I don't know what you call someone from Wyoming, people from Wyoming seeking abortion care will often go out of state. Though many of the states surrounding Wyoming are not exactly friendly to abortion access, I'm looking at you, Montana, often services are simply geographically closer for people to access. That's a big deal because Wyoming is pretty huge. It's the 10th largest state by area. It's the least populous with 577,737 people, and it is the second most sparsely populated state in the country, second to Alaska. This actually gives us the opportunity to offer some important context for a conversation about abortion access in Wyoming. There's really very few abortions performed here at all. According to the Guttmacher Institute, in 2017, 140 abortions were provided in Wyoming. Compare that, for example, to Michigan, where there were 26,630 abortions performed in 2017, and where the population in 2018 was close to 10 million. Some of this has to do with, again, the fact that there are not that many people in Wyoming. But now, according to Dr. Anthony and others I spoke with, we also understand that this has something to do with geography, that people are seeking care outside of the state based on where they live. And probably, in part, is also due to the restrictions in place. Even though Wyoming is much less restrictive than many of the other states I've visited, these restrictions still exist. So let's take a second to look in detail at a couple of the restrictions in Wyoming because there are some pretty important ones that Dr. Anthony covered that I haven't had a chance to deep dive into in previous episodes of the podcast. The first restriction I want to talk about is the law in place that restricts advanced practice clinicians like nurse practitioners and physician assistants from providing abortion care. So Dr. Anthony touched on this some, but in rural areas across the West, mid-level providers provide a lot of the care for, for folks in these areas where there just aren't a lot of doctors. In lots of places, these are the only providers available. So when those providers are banned from performing what we know to be a safe and effective procedure, that's a real barrier for people. In 34 states across the country, abortion has to be provided by a physician. And that's despite lots of evidence that shows mid-level providers can provide safe abortions for patients. There was actually a 
fairly recent report released by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine that concludes that abortion is undeniably safe and effective, and particularly that abortion can be provided by mid-level providers who are appropriately trained in a safe and effective way. And it is very conveniently available at abortionissafe.com which is great. The website also has lots of fact sheets about abortion and telehealth, abortion by mid-level providers, just the safety and efficacy of abortion methods in general, and it's a great uh, place to check out if you're interested to learn more. The other resource that I want to alert you to and that I will link in the show notes is the National Abortion Federation's website, which features the whole toolkit about how to integrate mid-level providers into abortion care and really just reiterating support for those providers to be providing abortion care. Many well-respected medical organizations have issued statements in support of inclusion of these providers in abortion care, including the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists, who way back in 1994 stated that, quote, to address the shortage of healthcare providers who provide abortions, the college encourages programs to train physicians and other licensed healthcare professionals to provide abortion services in collaborative settings. Other organizations that support this inclusion include the American Medical Women's Association, the American Public Health Association, the American College of Nurse Midwives, the Association of Physicians Assistants in Obstetrics and Gynecology, the International Confederation of Midwives, the National Association of Nurse Practitioners in Women's Health, and the Physicians for Reproductive Choice. Lots and lots of groups. The basic consensus is that providing abortion services is absolutely within the expertise of these mid-level providers who have been appropriately trained to do this, and particularly for medication abortions, which involves literally placing pills in someone's hand, this is something that mid-level providers are able to do. So we know that it's safe for mid-level providers to provide abortions. The thing that gets me about Wyoming and many other states is that nurse practitioners and PAs have full practice authority in these states, which means that they don't need oversight from a physician to practice. There's been some contention in other states about these kinds of laws. There's some contention from physicians groups that it's inappropriate to give mid-level practitioners full practice authority, but in rural states where there just aren't enough physicians to treat the population, this is becoming more and more common. Basically, in Wyoming, a nurse practitioner or a PA can have a normal primary care practice without any oversight, but they can't provide any abortion care with or without oversight at all. It, it seems crazy to me that a state would be okay with giving a practitioner the ability to provide opioids, for instance, which we know carries some danger, to provide full medical care, but they just leave out this one specific treatment. Clearly, there has nothing to do with medicine or the ability of nurse practitioners to provide medication abortions or in some cases even to provide an abortion procedure, but certainly a medication abortion that is something that a mid-level provider is completely capable of performing. They are capable of putting pills into someone's hand, giving them the guidance that they need to know about the potential side effects, the risks, and following up with them. And of course, if there's any kind of complication, they refer them to a provider who can help them with emergency care, which is the same thing that a primary care provider would likely do in that situation. So it does not make much sense at all (laughs) what's going on in Wyoming. And lots of people feel that way. 
including nurse practitioners who practice there. I was lucky to speak with one of them. Her name was Caitlin Shea. She is a nurse practitioner in Wyoming. She's cared about reproductive rights for a long time throughout her career, and now that she practices in Wyoming, is not able to perform abortions. Instead, she helps people access abortion care with her work through Chelsea's Fund, which is an abortion fund in Wyoming. How did you kind of come to the movement to be involved in abortion access or reproductive health care? I'm from Northern California, so it's never been something I've debated, uh, like which side of the line I'm on. Um, and I feel like as a healthcare provider, it's part of reproductive healthcare. And people I went to nurse practitioner school with provide terminations in other states, but in Wyoming, nurse practitioners and PAs cannot provide abortion. It's the one pill we cannot prescribe. Since that's not something I can do at this point, then being an advocate and yeah. helping people get to the places where they can receive care is important. So maybe I should back up a little bit for Chelsea's Fund, for people who haven't heard about it. What all do you guys do? So we are primarily a fund that really only pays for abortion services. We send checks directly to the clinic and we fund women throughout Wyoming and then women who live in the Teton Valley, which is Victor, Driggs, Tetonia that part of Idaho, just because they are really, it's kind of part, part of our community. We also offer information. So our website is really helpful in terms of finding out like what the regulations are, where you can receive services and how much those cost. And we keep it pretty updated. And there's also a lot of like frequently asked questions in terms of like, what are, what's the procedure like? What are the risks? What can I expect? What is not normal and what should I be concerned about? So I will definitely be putting a link in the notes to Chelsea's Fund so you can check them out. Joining work done by a local abortion fund is one of the best ways to get involved and to have an impact at the local level. And we'll talk a little bit more later in the episode about the advocacy work that Chelsea's Fund is also involved with. I want to take the next few minutes to talk briefly about another one of the restrictions that Dr. Anthony mentioned. And this is a a newer restriction, a restriction that's been augmented in the past year within Wyoming, which is their law on reporting. I talked a little bit more with Sharon about this, and she explained that the law that physicians ought to report abortions has always been in place, but that there were never really repercussions for not reporting that abortion. That all changed this year. Wyoming has had a a reporting law on the books since the 1970s, and about Oh, gosh, about 10 years ago, I'd have to go back and check my notes, the uh, the anti-choice politicians at the legislature started filing bills to try to, to put more teeth into the bill because the bill had no penalty. There was this law in the books. It went into a fair amount of detail about what doctors had to report. There was a form that had been developed by the state that every once in a while would get tweaked a little bit, but it was pretty dated and, you know, questionably HIPAA compliant. And, you know, they, they kept trying and we'd managed to beat it back pretty handily year after year. And when they came back in 2019 this year with another one of these bills to add penalties for if doctors don't get those reports filed, this was, oh, I'd say probably at least the fifth or sixth time that that we had dealt with one of these. But unfortunately, this time, the the bill passed and was signed into law by our uh, governor. And the bill started out one way and got changed. And the changes 
if anything, in my estimation, actually made it worse. So that there are now now teeth in this bill, and you know, I it, it went into effect July first, and the way the new the new language is worded is that I believe it's every I'd have to get the law out, but it's like every 100, 110 days, the state is supposed to check and see if these reports have been filed. And the thinking, if you want to call it that, or thinking, I guess you wouldn't call it reasoning, and all the testimony I heard on the bill this year was that the antis say, well, we know, you know, even though they're saying they don't have data, of course they do, because Guttmacher and CDC are getting data out and doctors are reporting to Guttmacher. We know that abortions are being done in Wyoming. And it's reasonable to assume, given the number of abortions that we think are being done, that every quarter there should be at least an abortion being done. So 90 days is a quarter, and then we add some extra time onto that, another 10 or 20 days or whatever they decide to add. And so, you know, every every so many days then, basically every quarter, the state health officer is mandated uh, by the new law to go looking for these reports. And if the state health officer doesn't find the reports, then he or she is mandated to notify the Board of Medicine that no reports have been filed or they, not enough or whatever whatever they, their reasoning is. Then the Board of Medicine is required to go hounding doctors that they think might have done an abortion to see if they should have filed a report. And of course, our biggest concern, and I, I haven't talked to either of the doctors yet to see if there have been any repercussions, my biggest concern is going to be like some of these other states, Missouri being the most recent egregious example, but we've seen it in Kansas in years past when Brownback was there, that they are the only way they're going to know if an abortion had been done and a report wasn't filed is if they go rifling through medical records and subpoenaing medical records. And I certainly hope it doesn't come to that. But the, the Board of Medicine then is supposed to go to these doctors and say, you know, if you, you should be getting your reports in. And if they have reason to believe that a doctor hasn't got his or her report in, then the, at this point it becomes discretionary on the part of the Board of Medicine. They can take um, the disciplinary action, but the disciplinary action can include revoking the doctor's license and finding them. I think it's $20,000 or $10,000. So, you know, the effect on on women is going to depend on what what our doctors are doing, what Dr. Anthony and Dr. Blue have decided to do in the face of this new law. And, you know, there was all kinds of talk of, oh, we just want good data. But of course, it's not that. And they want to harass these providers and uh, try to put them out of business. In terms of, you know, your question of how's it going to affect women's health, you know, I've, I've been asked that by reporters pretty much ever since the, the law started and and I or was was signed and you know I I certainly hope you know worst case scenario it's going to force doctors out of business and women are going to have less access to care I certainly hope that doesn't happen so we don't know exactly what's going to happen with this reporting law in Wyoming Hopefully, providers will be able to comply with it and it won't impact patient care too much. But these kinds of onerous and burdensome laws are in place across the country. In many, many states where these reporting laws are in place, they are not to protect patients. They are not to enhance patient care. They are 100% to make the lives of providers more difficult. And you heard Sharon mention Missouri. If you haven't yet heard the story about what's going on with Missouri officials 
and using protected health records to track women's periods in order to document, quote, failed, end quote, abortions in order to strengthen their case that the last clinic in Missouri ought to be shut down. Look it up. Uh, It's really disturbing. It should scare anyone who is worried about the government interfering in their life to know that officials were tracking a woman's period. And this is not disputed in any way. This is absolutely true. The state official who did this testified that he was tracking this person's periods in an Excel file. So Sharon's point in bringing this up was to point out that gathering private information about patients can be really dangerous and invasive and that these reporting laws are really walking a thin line between gathering that information and doing some kind of supposed public good. One would think that with these restrictions coming into place that doctors would be more involved in the advocacy opposing these restrictions, but that historically has not been the case. Because abortion is such a charged issue, doctors haven't been as involved overall as they should be. There are certainly really wonderful and vocal physician advocates out there that are doing great work, but in general, we've struggled to get our fellow physicians on board, particularly if they're not involved in abortion care. They don't see this as an issue that's affecting them. However, it clearly is. These are clearly attacks into the autonomy of physicians. I talked a little more with Dr. Anthony about the struggle to bring physicians into this kind of advocacy and the desperate, desperate need to do so. We actually recorded this at her home, so you may hear some background noise. A lot of medical societies are super frightened of taking a stand on abortion, and I'm in the process of trying to change that in our state, but it's an uphill battle. And I think for physicians, you have to focus on the patient-centered aspect of this and not the politics. So going to your, your medical society and really making your voice heard um, I think is super important. And and then going to your state capital, especially in the rural West where there aren't that many people, I really think it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. They actually listen to what you have to say. And they may not agree, but I do think it's an education of a lot of white men who don't really know what it's like to be pregnant when you don't want to be pregnant. And they need to learn how to respect that. One of the things I want to focus on that Dr. Anthony just spoke about was reaching out to our medical societies. So speaking directly to physicians, medical students, residents now, I think this is a great way to try to get physicians in your state to become more aware of the threats to their autonomy that are being put forward by these abortion bills and to gather a crew to speak up to your state officials about this. Just like outside of medicine, people are afraid to talk about this. They're afraid that it'll impact their patients, their practice. But bringing something like this up at a medical society is one way to find your people. So find the people who are out there. I'll say I've had some personal experience with this in Indiana. We introduced a resolution at our medical society about abortion access. And through that, We were able to find a network of physicians in the state who care about access to abortion, and through that, we were able to be connected and work in the upcoming legislative session on opposing, you know, the threats that are introduced. And in Indiana, just like in most of these conservative states, there will be a bill every year introduced that threatens the autonomy of physicians, that threatens abortion access and reproductive health care. So I definitely encourage any 
medical students, residents, physicians just getting involved, medical societies, definitely use them, definitely go to them and try to get your medical society to adopt a resolution because they do have a lot of power. Most of them have a lobbyist that they employ at the state level and the legislators will listen to physicians. They, they listen to their constituents in general. So I want to encourage everyone who's listening to get involved and to contact their state legislators. But physicians, if it's a bill that has to do with healthcare, your opinion matters a lot. So what I'll say from my experience is that I also learned that it doesn't stop at just making a resolution and passing it within your medical society. It's a great way to find your people, but then in these conservative states especially, you have to continue to apply pressure because what happens is even if that resolution gets passed, there's no guarantee that your society is going to follow through on that, which is disappointing, but a reality that we all have to face. So finding a network is a good way to work on continuing to apply pressure to medical society to follow through on resolutions if you are able to pass them to oppose abortion restrictions, those kinds of things. And there's lots of groups out there where you can find sample resolutions, uh, that kind of thing. The Reproductive Health Access Project is a great place to start to look for some of those sample resolutions and to connect with people in your state. And oftentimes, subspecialty groups will have networks for this kind of thing. So the uh, AAFP, the American Association of Family Physicians, has a reproductive health group. ACOG, the group for obstetricians and gynecologists. Of course, if you're a medical student, Medical Students for Choice is a great place to start and get involved. Lots of ways for folks who are already in the medical sphere to get involved with advocacy. Happy to post some of those links in the show notes as well. So just a little extra information for physicians, people in the healthcare field who want to get involved, super important for your voices to be a part of this advocacy. But I do want to emphasize that obviously you do not have to be in healthcare to be an advocate for access to abortion and reproductive health care. I mentioned talking with nurse practitioner Caitlin Shea about her work with Chelsea's Fund, and she told me a little bit more about how advocates in Wyoming can get involved. Yeah, there's a few really neat things going on in Wyoming specifically. Our legislature is designed to be really friendly to the public in terms of there are always community members there giving mm-hmm. their opinions on whether it's the Senate file or a House bill. And they have like open meetings where you can go in and you put your name in that you want to say something, you get up and you say whatever you want. So that's a really incredible experience just to go and speak in this meeting with with your senators or with your representatives. And then even once they're in session, you can lobby and you can hear a little piece of paper in and you can talk to them. And there aren't a lot of people in Wyoming. And so they sometimes listen and they sometimes don't, but they're always like at least polite about it, Mm -hmm. um, even if they disagree. So that's a really incredible thing that Wyoming residents have access to. And then more locally, there's this really great organization called the Wyoming Women's Action Network. And it's run by a woman who's a lobbyist and another woman who is um, a county commissioner. And they send out pretty regular tweets and emails. They have a Twitter and they also just do it via email, which is how I read it. And they're planning like a women's leadership and and lobbying training session so to learn the skills to speak persuasively and to awesome. um, get your voice heard at the state level, which is really, I mean, it, it makes a difference 
we went in, a group of us went in February, I think, and we spoke and we spoke to a few different people like on an individual level. And then we also spoke in a meeting and it was incredible. The meeting that all like 10 of us spoke in, it was decided in the direction that we were speaking towards. So Mm -hmm. it does make a difference. And then you hear the representatives, they're up there speaking about like a story that their neighbor told them or my son or my friend. And so unfortunately they're not making decisions based for the most part on like scientific research. It's like Mm -hmm. anecdotal, which can definitely go the wrong way, but I think is a good reason to, to have your voice heard because your anecdote might be what changes somebody's mind. And that is so true across the board, any kind of social justice initiative that you're working on, these personal stories 100% absolutely totally matter. So if you are in Wyoming and you want to get involved with the movement for abortion access, definitely check out Chelsea's Fund, check out Naval Pro-Choice Wyoming, and I will put those links in the show notes. Just like every episode, I did ask the folks I interviewed about what they think will happen in Wyoming if Roe is overturned. Do you guys ever talk about or think about, or do you ever talk or think about what will happen in Wyoming if Roe is further gutted or overturned in upcoming Supreme Court sessions? Yes, we have uh, thought about it and talked about it. You know, I don't know if you have seen um, the Center for Reproductive Rights just released their updated What If Roe Fell 2019 publication. I think what they've said about Wyoming, they have a little snippet for every state and and territory as well as a more detailed analysis. But what they say is if Roe v. Wade is limited or overturned, abortion likely will remain accessible in Wyoming, but without legal protection. And I I kind of see that as being true. Most of the current restrictions that are in our statutes, and as I mentioned, they're all in Title 35, Section 6, the bulk of that came about after Roe, like around 19, I think, 77. And so, you know, we can we can think back to, you know, even with the laws we have on the books now, you know, they're they're actually kind of more restrictive than than what we had before Roe. And before Roe, you know, most people were going out of state and and most Wyoming women are still going out of state. You know, we you had the, the privilege and uh, I hope the pleasure of talking with our two uh, lovely providers, but, you know, there are only two of them and they're in the northwest corner of the state and they do abortions only in the first trimester. So, you know, most people are go, going out of state and that's what happened before Roe. So I think, you know, we may have more people going out of state. What I worry about is when something like that happens, you know, there are already people that think abortion is illegal. I think, you know, we see that. I don't know how widespread it is, but they hear about these bans that are being passed places and they hear about there not being any providers and, and a lot of times the media and it's hard for them to get everything right for all 50 states, but they'll, you know, they'll put out, they'll, you know, that Wyoming doesn't have any providers or they'll, you know, something like that'll happen. So I think if, if Roe is further gutted or overturned, there'll be a, a bigger role for education. So people know that abortion is still legal and that they can still get it. But I, I do think the reality is you'll, you may end up seeing people try to self-manage. Um, and I'm sure you're hearing that elsewhere. And that's what we've talked about. We're not to the point now where we think we need to be 
really gearing up or, or pushing, you know, in that direction to try to help people self-manage abortions. You know, I personally still think if it gets really bad, there there could be coat hanger abortions. I know there's thinking that, oh, no, nobody would do that now that they can supposedly go on the Internet and, and get the pills somewhere. But I, I do think you're going to they're always going to be desperate women who are going to are going to take desperate measures. And hopefully we won't we won't be seeing too much of that. But basically the way things are in Wyoming right now, it's it's hard enough to get an abortion that and our laws, you know, say they there's not an explicit constitutional or legal protection, but there's also we don't have the the types, at least yet, we don't have the types of outright bans that are or pre-row bans that are are ready to go into effect. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with Roe with these upcoming court cases. But as of right now, that libertarian streak in Wyoming has been enough to keep the state somewhat free of many of the restrictions we've seen elsewhere. Though I do think that what Sharon mentioned about the education around the fact that abortion is still legal in a place like Wyoming, even if Roe is further gutted or returned, will be an important piece because if people think abortion is legal, that basically makes it inaccessible in their eyes. So education will always be an important component of our work. That about wraps it up for Wyoming. I want to thank everyone I was able to interview, the providers, Dr. Blue and Dr. Anthony, as well as Caitlin Shane, nurse practitioner, who is with Chelsea's Fund, and Sharon Brettweiser with Neighborall Pro-Choice Wyoming. I'll be sure to post in the show notes links to more information about mid-level providers and abortion care, as well as information about how to get involved with advocacy in Wyoming and how to donate to Chelsea's Fund and help people in Wyoming access abortion care. Thanks very much, and we will catch you on the next episode, where I'll be heading to the Southwest. Music for this episode is provided by David Hyde, and you can find his information in the show notes.